Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Better, Faster, Smarter, a podcast aimed at doing just that, helping our customers get better, faster, and smarter throughout all of their manufacturing processes. In today's episode, we are excited to share the recording of a recent Florida Makes State of Automation webinar, which occurred on April 26th and featured several panelists from the industry, one of which being Sean Dotson, major partner of R&D Automation, the other one, Jeff Condal, owner of Roots Engineering, and then also our very own Doug Adams. This webinar on the state of automation will focus on what's happening in automation today, what the future of automation holds, and the impact of automation education in our Florida schools. We hope you enjoy this very insightful conversation between Sean, Jeff, and Doug. Welcome and good morning, everybody, to uh, the Florida Makes Technology Webinar Series. My name is Micah Daugherty. I am the business uh, advisor here in South Florida for Florida Makes and the South Florida Manufacturers Association. And uh, today's topic is going to be the state of automation in manufacturing. And uh, I have seen a lot of changes in, in manufacturing over my 35-year career and innovation and how innovation and technology has really molded the way manufacturing is today. Uh, today, we have three great panelists with us from three companies that are deeply involved in technology and automation, and I'd like to take a few minutes to introduce our, our panel participants. First, we have Sean Dotson, who is president and founder of R&D Automation. Sean, <clears throat> he's a president and a major partner in R&D, a Florida native. He received his bachelor's in science from uh, mechanical engineering from the University of Florida. Sean has been in the industrial automation and robotics industry his entire career. He is a licensed professional engineer in the state of Florida and works with key accounts to build strong manufacturing partnerships. Second, we have Jeff Condell, owner of Roots Engineering Services and Roots Education Company. Jeff has a, a bachelor's in science in automated manufacturing and an MBA from the ITT Technical Institute. With 20 years experience in automotive, medical device, and food and beverage manufacturing, his perspective on advanced manufacturing best practices are progressive. His experience encompasses advanced manufacturing practices in automotive, medical device, dietary supplement manufacturing, and food and beverage. And finally, we have Doug Adams, who is president of Adams Corporation. It was founded in 1960 by John and Dorothy Adams. Doug is an experienced executive with a demonstrated history of working in the industrial automation industry, skilled in management, business development, automation, and sales management. Doug has a Bachelor of Science in Finance from the University of Tampa, John H. Sykes College of Business. So let's start off, Sean. Tell us a little bit about how your company uh, is involved in, in automation, uh, let's say in the past five years, and how do you see the future and the state of automation and manufacturing uh, as it relates even specifically here to the state of Florida? Yeah, so, uh, so we've been, you know, obviously in, in the state of Florida for our, uh, our entire corporate uh, careers. R&D is about 17 years old. Um, we've seen Florida grow tremendously as a manufacturing state in the last uh you know 20 20 some odd years 
Um, you know, everybody always considers Florida to be tourism and hospitality, but there's 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 quite a bit of, of manufacturing as, as evidenced by the fact of you know the, the three of us being in this industry. Um, you know, we've we've always built custom automation machinery for customers in the state of Florida and all over the United States, mainly in the Southeast. But we're we're seeing you know again um, in the last couple of years we're seeing a real big uptick in in the state of Florida uh, for manufacturing and. You know, through reasons that we're going to talk about probably later in this uh, in this webinar, um, you know, the the reasons for automating are becoming far far more evident, more clear to manufacturers. You know, labor skills gap, you know, all of that that we're going to get into a little bit later. Um, all reasons that we're seeing this automation is just exploding in, in the last uh, two three years. Great, thank um, <clears throat> thank you, Sean. Appreciate that. Uh, Jeff, how, uh, that, let's hear from you. What, what are your, what is your take on this? Uh, towards the first question there, what's the, uh, Florida uh, line? Well, no, towards the state of manufacturing in, in Florida and what your, your company's experience has been. Well, I don't want to, um, I don't want to cut up anybody here, but you know, Elon's kind of ruined it. Everybody sees his photos of his facility and everything's lights out manufacturing robots everywhere. I get that request. That's what I want. And, uh, so I try to, we're process oriented. So I like to have them answer the question maybe 50 times over. Why do you want automation? What are your KPIs? What are you trying to solve? So uh, the solution and, and automation is definitely it's simpler these days. It's less expensive, easier to implement. Uh, there's great resources all around. Um, sometimes I actually ask them to slow down and make sure that the investment is worth it. Focus on the critical tasks. Focus on the the, the real return on maybe in an investment. Uh, understanding your customer needs. Understanding how you increase margins. So, it's uh, it's fabulous when you get down to the end of that process and you hand them the uh, potential, uh, you know, call it like a proposal and cost. And it's easier to push that through finance when you have all that information answered up front versus. Uh, Oh, I didn't think it was going to cost that much. So Florida is in the right spot. When I moved down here six years ago, I felt we were more in the trough of automation and there's nothing but up, you know, upside. And uh, you see the education, you see the businesses, you see uh, uh, workforce development all pulling towards the right direction and automating um, our supply chains here. Good. Thank, thank you, Jeff. Doug, what... Uh, what, what do you think about uh, automation and technology here in Florida, and how's your company been involved in it for the last uh, five five or so years? So it's it's been a it's been a big shift over the last five years. Um, you mentioned you know, my grandparents started our company in 1960. Uh, we were traditional fluid power, which is hydraulics and pneumatics. Um, we did a, a, a quite a bit of value add integration then, uh, and you know what's interesting is it, where it started is kind of where it's where it's landed now. Uh, no pun intended. Um, the, uh, the world, uh, in Florida was heavy aerospace, you know, especially with the early space program. And it had a lot to do with phosphate in that center part of the United or center part of, of Florida there and kind of the I-4 corridor. Um, whereas, you know, the space program, you know, when it, you know, shrunk, I would say late two thousands, you know, it, it really put a hurt on the other side of the state. Uh, and we are seeing, you know, Elon and, uh, of course, Jeff Bezos putting two rocket companies over there. The aerospace is growing considerably in our state, 
um, which is driving a lot of need for other ancillary and secondary suppliers, both machine shops, you know, companies like ours, all different types of, of, of feeder organiz organizations that would supply those. Uh, but you've also seen a, a huge push into medical device. You've seen a lot in you know, power generation growth, um, both you know, traditional and, and sustaining types uh, all, all throughout the state uh, and quite a bit of heavy industry in that, that northern part. Um, Adams really exists to, to try to help uh, our customers essentially compete in their global marketplace that they're in. You know, the world's a lot smaller than it used to be. Um, you know, very competitive uh, you know, from, a, from a labor standpoint. Um, so we're making everything that we can do try to, 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 to help them to be more competitive in that global marketplace, but always kind of act as an extension of their engineering group. Uh, where you know some of the small to medium-sized businesses in Florida might not have, you know, a full-on automation team or a full-on um, production team. We really try to work to be an extension of that. Great, thank, thank you, Doug. And you know, automation is can be intimidating and can be a little bit scary to to companies when they start thinking about the change and and going into it. So you know, Sean, let's start with you. You know, how does a company determine, you know? if automation is actually the right thing for them? Well, I mean, that's where you need to bring in, you know, the automation experts, really. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people will look, um, you know, as Jeff mentioned, they, they see some of these, you know, lights out factories at, uh, at Tesla, and they see some automation lines at Ford or GM, and they think, you know, that, that's automation, that's what I want. And, and, and a lot of times, it's not what the customer needs. Um, we've been invited into uh, plants before where um, you know, a customer says, this is the section I want to automate. And, and we'll ask, well, you know, show me, show me upstream. And, and they'll say, well, that's not important right now. Well, no, just, just, you know, show me what's going on upstream. And you find out, you know, upstream is, is where the problem is. That's what needs to be automated. They've got, you know, 15 labor, labor laborers, you know, working on one section upstream um, and they've got two people downstream. So um, a lot of times, you know, what customers think they want might not be exactly what they need. Um, you know, old Rolling Stone song. Um, so uh, it, that's where you really have to to bring in, you know, an expert um, who's been doing this sort of thing uh, for a long time and, uh, and and get multiple opinions as well. Great, great. Jeff, uh, what do you think? Well, I, I'll keep saying process until I'm blue in the face. Um, if I go into a manufacturer and they don't have a process for analyzing their existing, you know, manufacturing a production system, uh, we got to start from there. We need to baseline. Um, we need to have rules in place. We need to have to make sure everybody's involved from the top down. Now, we can come up with an idea. Is that idea affordable? Is that idea realistic? Is it time bound? So. Now I'm a I'm, I'm a data-driven person, so I love a, a DMAIC approach or a, even a DFSS approach in your manufacturing process. So go out there and collect the data. Um, make sure you understand the data, and the, but have a process that analyzes you know your current manufacturing, how to improve that manufacturing, and maybe automation is a solution. But as Sean said. You know, upstream, downstream, the actual process, um, data will data will help you and it'll remove the feelings from that operations manager or that other manager say, that's my problem. And I know I just know it. I feel it. And uh, 
Uh, too many times I walk in there and I walk out saying they're not ready for automation. They, they don't even understand their own process yet. Um, so they could be, they could make changes quickly and it'd be positive. But if they had a set of requirements and if you're just going to wing it, you may not hit all those requirements and you may not get your return on investment the way you expected. So you might have some people in improved skill set in making more parts per hour, but you know, that $500,000 investment may not uh, lend itself to the, to be the best investment. Uh, so if you, if you call somebody in like a Sean or myself or Doug, um, most of us are going to have great ideas right away, but uh, actually executing that, uh, you really need to know why you're making that decision to bring us in before um, and understand your own process before we do. It, it can help improve that the entire stream, entirely streamline that process from idea to execution uh, to final sign-off. Great, great. Thank you. And, and Doug, uh, you know, being in business development and, and, and management, you know, you're, with your background, um, obviously uh, with the automation, what, what do you think about, um, about this as well? Yeah, I always I uh, I was trying not to put I was trying to take my sales hat off of it as I uh, was kind of walking through this this response. Um, but the first thing we always try to start with is what's the customer's why. Um, you know, so there there might be uh, maybe a, a key decision maker um, or an executive within an organization that says, "Hey, you know, we need to automate this process," and really trying to back into to their why. And usually it takes three or four but whys to actually get there. And then we get there and then we really need to figure out uh, on a complex piece of automation equipment um, or any really sort of automation equipment, there's anywhere from five to eight people within that organization that are going to try to um, to 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 want to understand um, how this process is going to work, and how it might affect them. And that could be anywhere from finance to operations to production, um, you know, plant level management, maybe corporate management that might even not even sit at that individual facility, but have could have P&L responsibility for that. So trying to understand their why and then understanding who all are the stakeholders and then trying to get consensus there. Uh, so now we've got consensus in regards to we need to automate this process. Now I'd start to go down the same path that, that Sean and Jeff did. Is, OK, well, let's talk about the data and then we want to automate this process. Well, you know, are we trying to automate the process as is or are we trying to optimize the process? And then now we've optimized said process. There's all these other processes that are on the outside, um, depending if it's batch or single piece flow in your factory. You know, where are we at with that? And if we add this really high tech piece of automation equipment, does that create another problem upstream or downstream? Um, so now we've done all of that. And typically we pick the most complex, difficult application and that's the, the most challenging to either find skilled labor for. And we go right there and we try to hit the home run right away. And the challenge with that being is that that's going to be a very expensive piece of equipment. It's going to take a long time to, to justify from an ROI standpoint or move through finance. Um, and then the, the other side of that is that would I have a, a team internally to that organization to be able to support that very highly complex piece of equipment? All the guys on this team or on this call real quick could, could, could build you a, a very difficult and complex piece of equipment that can automate nearly anything as long as you have the time and budget for it. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got to be able to support it once it gets into your factory. So if you've never done automation in your facility or you have minimal amounts of automation, I always suggest with let's start a, with a single or double to use a, a baseball analogy. Let's start with maybe a $50,000 or $100,000 project versus that half million or million dollar piece of equipment uh, to really get you know a handle on, on what a, a complex piece of automation equipment 
is in the factory, get some wins and then get consensus with the group, especially if you have a high labor count within that organization. Culturally, there's a shift there. So we really want to understand what that's going to do to the rest of the team if we bring this automation equipment in and really show that it helps them do their job better, not potentially replaces them. Okay, great, great. You mentioned something, uh, you, you know, all three of you mentioned a lot, a lot about workforce. And as we all know, the last couple of years have been uh, very challenging. The world has changed in a lot of ways. And there are, you know, labor shortages. It's really tough to find workers. Um, you know, Sean, I'm going to go back to you. Do you have any explanation or any, any idea why companies wouldn't look to automation to, to help them with these uh, workforce shortages? Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, and the workforce shortages are not going away. There's, you know, there's a lot of complex reasons behind it, but a lot, a lot of it goes back to quite frankly, just demographics. You know, we've got the, the, the baby boomer generation that is starting to retire and, and, you know, they didn't have as, as, as many kids and the next generation gen X didn't have as many kids. So we've got this kind of inverted funnel of, of, of workforce, which is, it's not going to get better anytime soon. The only, the only way to make it better is to get either, you know, have, have more kids or allow more immigrate immigration in. Um, so that workforce is going to be a, a continual problem. Um, you know, as to why manufacturers don't, you know, what, what they, they kind of fear automation. Um, I think we all, you know, we all fear what we don't understand. And a lot of it is, um, you know, what people think that the automation is going to be too expensive. Um, and if you do the ROI calculation, you'll prove that out, whether it will be or will not. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's just mathematics. Um, you know, they fear it's going to be complicated. You know, to Doug's point, that can be complicated, um, but, you know, we can help help grow, grow those skill sets um, within your own company. You know, elevate one of your top operators from just pushing a button every day to, uh, you know, to doing something that's a little bit more rewarding. You know, um, managing this piece of automation equipment, you know, loading the machine, clearing any kind of jams, you know, maybe even doing some minor robot programming at some point. Um, so, um you know, and again, they, uh, you know, another another reason is they think that, uh, you know, perhaps their product can't be automated. It's a, we've always made it this way. You know, it's it's this, this, this a smaller company, maybe a mom and pop company that have, that's grown and we've always done it by hand and we're going to continue to do it by hand. And that's great if you can get away with, you know, custom handmade products. Um, but if you're talking about, you know, commodities like, say, you know, you know hydraulic valve, um, you've got companies out there that are, you know, they're, they're pumping these valves out every four or five seconds. If you're building these handcrafted valves, you know, every 10 or 15 minutes, um, you better have a real good niche in that industry. You know, otherwise you, you're not going to be in business. Sure. Sure. Jeff, um, how, how do you see, how do you see, uh, you know, the automation and, and how this is uh, working with these challenges in the workforce? Well, I've been I've been thrown into that uh, directly thrown into that over the past three years uh, with uh, the education side, and it's been a um, it's been a tremendous opportunity, I guess, to help change the that state. So what what I see is you know the on the education side, the instructors, administrators trying to link to what businesses need, businesses have a lot of ideas sometimes they get it gets dropped quickly when they want to execute 
that idea in the school says, hey, we also have limitations, budgets. Um, we're trying to attract students. It is a it's a very loaded question, and I know we're on here to help uh, understand that. But uh, there's many ways I I want to answer this, and not the time. Um, so you know, some of the biggest hurdles that uh, the actual manufacturer has is with automation. It's not very maybe quick to execute. It's not extremely flexible yet, especially in Florida for our small and small and medium-sized businesses. Throwing a person at it is very quick. You know, hey, you're doing this on Mondays and on Tuesdays you're over here in the other area. I mean, it's hard to do that with automation uh, that quick. But um, we're finding that you know, the resources aren't there and the schools are not just putting out operators they are putting out you know highly skilled or technical people that want automation so to attract the talent um, you need to upgrade to even improve your workforce a little bit and that goes for the schools here um, the, you know schools have a workforce right they have they're trying to hire teachers all the time if they don't improve their curriculum and improve their equipment they can't even attract that talent at the schools which are affecting thousands of students in, in their generation. You know, Sean mentioned it yesterday, his daughter's in a program now that has a robot, an industrial grade robot in a middle school. Uh, I didn't touch my first robot <laughs> until I was 19 in college, you know, and it was one robot to share and, uh, and the teacher didn't know anything, you know, about it. So we are really pushing the envelope in Manatee County you know, and, and Doug Wagner of Manatee County is he's a unicorn. He he sees the future and he's going to push uh, technology at the lowest level all the way down to elementary. And Florida will change the way it, it attracts businesses. It, we might be 10 years away before somebody saying there's too much talent and not enough talent. But uh, it, the businesses will have to keep up um, with the what the schools are trying to implement. Hopefully that answers sure. your question. Yeah, yeah, no, that that, that did. And it, it actually brings up another question. And, and Doug, this this is for you. Um, you know, we're talking a lot about, you know, challenges in, in workforce. We're talking about challenges in, in industry and manufacturing in general. What are you hearing from manufacturers is their biggest concern and biggest challenge when considering automation? And how do you address those concerns? Um, it depends on the day and, and size of company. So I think it probably starts with size of company, and it, it's similar to what you know we've, we've discussed here previously. It comes down to cost, and you're looking at costs from two different buckets. You know, if I've got a, a labor, especially if I'm using utilizing temp labor, I can flex that up and down. Assuming I can get temp labor, you know, to be present, I can flex that up and down based on our business needs. If we if we go ahead and spend the the, the capital on, on buying a piece of automated equipment. You know, I, I'm, I'm into that cost for a period of time, especially if I'm finance said cost. Um, you know, interest rates are going up, so there's going to be a challenge there in regards to, you know, what that looks like. Um, but in the bigger companies, the, the really the biggest challenge in implementing is, is that they have the skill set. And, and it goes to what, what Jeff's talking about and what Sean is, is that they just don't necessarily have the talent to potentially do it. And when I started in, in, in this business probably 15, 16 years ago, I had probably 10 or 15 different customers throughout Florida and Florida wasn't as big from a manufacturing standpoint as it is now um, that had an in-house automation group uh, where they would actually 
build equipment internally. They had their own, you know, similar OEM style, like, you know, mine or Jeff's or Sean's organizations where they would build their own equipment. Uh, some of it would be build the print where, you know, it'd get jobbed out to a Sean or, or something like that, but they would do a design. I have very few of those now. The majority of those organizations do not have the talent to be able to do that. And, you know, part of it is just the baby boomer generation retiring. A lot of those, those gentlemen are, and ladies were, you know, uh, of that age and they've essentially, you know, retired out of the marketplace and they haven't been able to backfill. I do think with like what Jeff's doing with the, uh, the younger group getting involved at the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade level and to get them exposure to it. Because I think that there's this huge misconception that there's not manufacturing jobs available. We don't make anything in this country anymore, which is just not true. We're making more than we've ever made. It just comes down to there's less people doing it because of automation, but there could be far more jobs created, especially high tech, high paying jobs, but getting that exposure, you know, at an early, at an early age, but also relaying to them that that doesn't necessarily require a four-year degree or a five-year degree in a major university. You can go and get a two-year engineering degree uh, from one of these phenomenal state colleges throughout our, our state and immediately be employable at, at a very high rate um, and typically be on scholarship for the four-year degree at a major college university as, as you work towards that without having any sort of student debt. Um, but just most students, I don't feel that know that those capabilities are available, um, nor do the parents that are, are coaching their kids in that next generation. Thank you, Doug. Sean, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on this? Uh, you know, you obviously see a lot of companies and talk to a lot of folks. You know, what, what are you hearing is the biggest biggest challenge and in, in, in how do you address it with them? <clears throat> there, um, there's a lot of challenges right now in manufacturing and um, it's trying to figure out which one to tackle first. Um, right now, there's a lot of manufacturers that are having supply chain issues and they're running around with their heads on fire, trying to, you know, to find aluminum, trying to find components, trying to find raw materials um, just to produce, you know, what, what they can with the labor that they can, um, you know, and, and, and that's a, you know, a huge priority for a lot of them. Um, many companies have come to us and saying, we need to automate, we need to automate, but we just, we don't have time, you know, to, to, to do it. Uh, to which we, we answer back, well, you're not doing the automation. We are. We we just need to sit down, spend a little bit of time with you, figure out uh, you know what your process is, where are your pain points, you know how can we help, and and then let us take it from there. Um, you know, as as Doug mentions, you know, there's some places that do have in-house you know capabilities. Um, we work with those 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 people as well. We love to work with them because they they know what they're doing. Um, but you know, trying to trying to believe that that automation is all on the manufacturer. Is, is, a, is, a, is a big fallacy. Um, that's what we're here to help. Um, all, all, you know, all three of these companies are here to help manufacturers figure out these problems. Um, and you know, I, unfortunately, it's one of those things where, yeah, you've got, a, uh, you've got a leak in the boat and you're bailing it out with these supply chain issues, but eventually you got to plug that leak. You, know, you have to go to the root cause of the problem and you got to figure out how to produce more, better, faster, less scrap while you're also still trying to get all your raw materials. So you can't, you can't just focus on one problem. And I think sometimes, you know, it, it, we all fall victim to that. You know, you, you, you're trying to put out the fire right in front of you and you don't see the gigantic, you know, fire behind you. So. Great. Great. Jeff, I'd really like to, to get your perspective on this as well. And especially coming from automotive or dealing with, you know, automotive industry, food and beverage industry, 
medical device industry and three three industries that have had technology um, that's let's say embedded in them for some time you know how did you address their concerns you know when you first started with some of these industries in uh, you know addressing the automation concerns you know the process again but uh, it, it was in the strategy you know we did not let a um, I guess a pandemic is unpredictable but you know, when it comes down to a supply chain shortage, that's just the problem today. Um, after the supplies come back in, you know, what's the problem that was there before? Is it going to be back to HR and finding people to, to recruit? Or is it going to be waste in the stream? So it's a strategy. You're, the person that's in charge of operations has to be two years ahead, you know, in understanding their problems and their customer needs. And then it's not firefighting. Uh, every day at maybe a significant level where you're, you know, losing shareholders or, you know, your, your, your stock price is dropping down or you can't attract talent. So down here, um, it's been a lot of tourism and it's been a, a lot of manual labor processes. But, you know, that mom and pop shop sells their product online. Now they're an international company and they get orders from, from anywhere. So, I, I agree completely with Sean. You're going to have these fires, but if the building's burning down. Um, you really got to step back and see what your strategy is years to come and uh, start preparing you know, talent and your budgets and uh, a way to improve your processes through lean and through, uh, you know, automation. And, uh, I guess medical device, you know, you had, as an example, you had to automate a lot of the processes because you could not, you know, you couldn't put a person in a chamber to do a six log reduction. Uh, you weren't going to put them in a class 100 clean room um, without significant delays in shipping. Automotive, if you put that person in a paint booth all day long, they have a very short lifespan. Uh, some of those items that uh, you're doing it for their own safety and you know, the hazards involved down here, it's it's different. And um, we're changing, though. Like I said, I, I think we're in the trough of automation here. But, I mean, Sean's lived it, and he's done amazing. I just I come down here, and I see the process of ways to expedite that, make it so when Sean gets a call for an automation that he's got, you know, a 12-page document that says, here's all the user requirements, here's our baseline, here's our value stream map, here's what works, here's what doesn't. This is most critical to my customer. We can't afford to lose that. What's it going to take? And otherwise, Sean, if they don't have that, Sean has to go in or Doug has to go in and start taking those notes. You come with Sean with a package, you can quote it in a day, ballpark it, and you'll probably have something. If you give him a check, have something to you in 12 or 14 weeks. You know, wouldn't that be amazing if we could just snap our fingers? And it's a real, a true collaboration uh, inside the business. They should know their processes better than anybody. You have to be disciplined and have a process of saying, how do we change you know, do we do we have everybody from the CFO down? Do we collect data? Do we have a change management process? Uh, um, I have like a 54-point check uh, uh, list for called an RPA, a robotic process analysis. I make people go through that. Not only um, do we know where we can get it from, but can you support your spare parts, your training, safety aspects, um, who's the core team, um, you know, it's, it's quite extensive, but it helps solve the problem when you go to that integrator. They are actually ready. 
they they ask the question before they have to worry about bringing other people in. That's how we've done it up north for you know since I was probably 20 years old working with ABB and traveling the world. Just uh, you learn a lot about people and cultures and the different ways, but it can come down to just a pretty simple process, no matter where you automate. Great, great. So a lot of a lot of good things that we've talked about how automation is affecting manufacturing and and, and it's kind of where where we're going in manufacturing. Where's automation going with innovation? What's uh, you know what's happening new and exciting and you know that you guys are seeing and um, you, you know um, Doug, I'm going to let you start off with that one. So I think the biggest shift that you're going to see and have started to see is um, ease of use with some of the individual automation devices. Um, the software uh, technology is getting far easier to use. Um, where it also looks similar to the environments that maybe the younger folks that you know, might have used a Raspberry Pi or used Python um, potentially would, would have familiarity with it, uh, in addition to some function block and, and, and very easy uh, drag and drop interfaces to be able to implement technology, uh, both on the robotics, machine vision, PLC, motion control side. Um, and then the design software is getting easier. I saw Keith uh, shoot a, shot a note here in the Q&A box about uh, simulation software. And uh, you can essentially design your piece of equipment without having to buy one thing, uh, which really helps uh, reduce the, the risk side of what it is. And then also to, to maybe an executive that's not as familiar with uh, automation, it gives them a deliverable that they understand what they might be moving forward with. Um, so it's easier to get to that point where, you know, previously it, it might take 100 hours of engineering to get a concept um, or show a working model of something. There's, there's a lot of options in regards to being able to, to get what that deliverable looks like. Uh, assuming we have like what, what Jeff and Sean both mentioned is that that scope of work document. And I mean, we've gotten to the point at Adams where, and I'm sure, you know, Sean and Jeff, uh, we, we really struggle to, to start a project unless that's defined, uh, because if it's not defined, it's probably not important. Um, but if, if you take that with the ease of use of, of really all of these different devices and then put them together, it really allows for the automation support side is not as complicated. You still have to have a support person, uh, but the technology is getting easier to use. And then on, on top of that, the technology from a price standpoint is coming down. You know, the same robot that was, you know, $35,000 10 years ago is probably 15 or 20 now. You know, the same camera or same PLC is 50 to 100% or 50 to 75% lower cost. Uh, in addition to it, it has more capabilities. Just think of our cell phones, just extrapolate that in regards to automation products. They're getting faster, they're getting smaller. Uh, so there's more opportunities to use them in more places because the price points come down. Great, great. Sean, what do you, um, you, know, what, what do you think about all of this? You know, what, do you, what are you seeing that's new and exciting happening in auto automation these days? Well, Doug stole most of my good points, which uh, doesn't surprise me. I mean, we're we're in the same you know we're in the same sphere and sector. Funny gave it to me first, but uh, yeah, I'll give you that one. Um, so, but I mean, just to, I mean to reemphasize a couple things he said is you know ease of use is 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 one of those important things, and we're getting smarter sensors, sensors that can tell you that when they're about to fail or when they're starting to fail. So you. you know, People don't necessarily have to wait until something fails. They can see that, hey, the signal's starting to degrade. Maybe I should go ahead and uh, clean the sensor or replace it ahead of time so we don't have any downtime. 
Um, there are, you know, there are cameras now that are doing, you know, deep learning, you know, quote unquote artificial intelligence, which, which you don't have to stringently say this is a good or bad product. You, you, you show it examples of here's a bunch of good products. Here's a bunch of what I consider bad products. And you don't really have to even say why are they bad? The camera starts to learn that, hey, these are bad products and these are good products. And that's what I'm looking for. And this is what I'm going to reject. So it allows it allows you to without really getting detailed down to the weeds of, of programming, just you know, examples. Um, again, costs, you know, we, we talk about the costs of automation are going up just because of supply chain and because of inflation and things like that. However, there are components that, as Doug mentioned, you know, robots, for example, um, you know, sometimes I mention to some customers like, well, okay, we're going to put a robot on that. Like, oh, no, no robots. That's too expensive. And, you know, I, I argue with them that, you know, over the last 25 years, robot costs have come down to the point where you no longer design mechanisms anymore. A mechanism to, to do a pick and place or a, a cam driven mechanism to do something that takes multiple iterations to get right. I don't care how good of an engineer you are. The, the first time you design a mechanism, kind of not going to work. Uh, the second time it probably maybe work. Third time it'll work, but you don't know how long it's going to last. You know, robots are a proven technology. You've got four to six axes of motion all built into this super simple, easy to use uh, piece of equipment um, and flexibility as well, too. Um, you know, even if your machine that uh, uh, your product goes away and you, you don't need that machine after five, six, seven years, you pull the robots off and you put them on another piece of automation. So, um, you know, longevity, you know, would be another reason you know, along with that. Um you know, it, we're, we're seeing a lot of things, you know, the, we can get into the whole Internet of Things and connect all the machines being connected and things like that. That's all well and good. And it is a technology that's very important. Um, but unless you're a, you know, Fortune, Fortune 1000 size company, getting really, really, really deep into IoT is, is probably a little cost prohibitive for you. Understood. Understood. <laughs> Jeff, it if sounds I, uh, like they covered a lot on that. What, uh, oh, I got what would a, you like to? I got a lot more. Yeah, no, no worries. You, you got this, a lot more. I was told. Hear it. I was told whoever said the the a joke get a free lunch. So you know, Sean is probably the biggest Cobot fan I know. Just joking. <laughs> uh, if anybody follows Sean on LinkedIn, um, what I see changing a what he's I see not, changing a lot. I know. Ever since he used that Fanic, uh, yeah, that he was told to probably. Fanic um, comes out with one. It's technology. Yeah, ever. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, I probably get a free lunch, but uh, Sean probably sent me a bill for one too. Um, <laughs> so what I see, you know, Cobots. I, I I use a lot of Cobots in schools because it fits the environment better. Um, it's not that it's all of our processes are collaborative. You know, the robot may be, but. Uh, it fits the environment very well, and I, and but if a customer asks for us to say, "Hey, we want traditional," okay, expect a lot of difference. You're not going to get that probably open, open atmosphere. You're not going to be intimate with a robot as you are with some of our other ways we've set up. But what I see a lot in technology is the safety, and Fanic actually has probably done the best job in safety for collaborative robots. It's a lot harder to use at times in programs, so it's. It, it takes time to execute and understand your payloads and uh, your motions and when you're picking up parts and stuff. But they are pushing the envelope of safety. And I would love to see the next collaborative robot 
not hit somebody before it stops, but actually avoid somebody and reroute itself. And that will not make things cheaper or less expensive. You're going to have a lot of technology that's going to uh, use that. But imagine walking in a factory and it's knowing where every moving object is and all the automation is communicating with a, a, an operator or a human just as if this was, uh, you know, 30 years from now in some, you know, some superistic uh, film. But, so, you know, in 20 years of automation, a six-axis robot hasn't changed much. The software has changed tremendously, and I love it, man. It's uh, sometimes so easy to execute this user-friendly iPad-looking device, matches your phone. You can observe, a, a, you know, a robot and a fleet of robots over your phone, cloud-based, easy programming. Um, it's, helped, it's helped me in the schools get the students moving through different levels of training quicker, not sitting there trying to remember where that feature was or that function was buried inside 12 different levels on a teach pendant. Um, and what we, we kind of throw this rule out, you know, sketch before you fetch. So before you take a teach pendant and you sit down there for hours and try to do your programming, show us the simulation that you've done with it. Go through that because there's only one robot in the classroom. And if you're going to take that 45 minutes for those three hours in your class to, um, do your program, you've wasted maybe 20 other students. So everybody can get a simulator, sit in front of a computer, draw your, your program, go through it, and then go do teach minute time. So that's helped our business. It's helped our environment, our future, um, you know, robotic engineers and technicians. Uh, so I guess that that is, those are two topics that I really see change in innovation, as well as and more, it's more like a a financial innovation as I see government really getting involved with schools and schools getting involved with businesses to say, what do we need? And they're not just buying off the shelf equipment, whatever they can afford to fit on the tabletop. We're actually implementing factories in schools now, uh, making them so that they're scalable, that they can keep adding variables in different scenarios uh, to reach those outcomes that the businesses, the future employers need. And, uh, you know, Florida, especially in the Orlando and Manatee County, are, are leaders in that right now, investing a lot of money and trying to make them, you know, I guess, industry ready. Um, taking real skills and real world scenarios and throwing it in there, not uh, not using toys that you got off Amazon and saying, hey, go work for, you know, Mr. Dotson or Mr. Adams after this. And they got to retrain them from the beginning. So uh, we're not we're not perfect but we're trying to help uh, bridge those gaps. So we, we, we enjoy the technology, uh, at, at least the, the commercialized technology. Um, we're not using augmented reality because it's not really a commercially viable product in manufacturing, but uh, you know, eventually somebody will be doing maintenance, not by looking at a book, but by wearing goggles and exploding the motor and seeing all the parts and the instructions for that and wearing a pair of goggles that uh, that's coming. Well, Jeff, I mean, it, it's really not too far. We off we we uh, this last Pack Expo, we brought um, iPads with uh, CAD images of our standard equipment, and I was able to, you know, with the iPad, put it out in the aisle of the the trade show, and you could actually walk yeah. around the machine, you know, with the iPad. Now it's not maintenance, right? But it's but it's here's how big your machine is, and this is, you know, here's the features of the machine without having to bring 
you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment to this trade show. Um, yeah. So, and we, you know, that we just barely scratched the surface on it. So it's, yeah. it's some pretty neat technology. Sean, we got a, um, we got this <laughs> learning factory going in, in Orlando and, um, it's got six stations, a milling machine, 3D bin picking, uh, serialization, lasers, and all that. And I got this young kid who's who does renderings, and he goes, "Hey, I can put on my hollow lens and I can walk through the whole thing." I'm like, "Okay, go for it." He walked through the whole factory um, virtually before I built it, and uh, he goes, "This oh, is where cool. it would fit best in the factory." And uh, but I yeah. love that from a maintenance perspective. You know, if you're doing HVAC, which is popular here in Florida, here. You're up on a roof and that manual soaking wet because it's been sitting in the unit forever. Imagine putting on lenses and just exploding that whole thing, finding the part you need and ordering it right there, uh, you know, from your lens, basically. And uh, that's going to help a lot of our the technologies that that they're the dirty jobs that they have to go in there and fix things and the grease. And uh, it's hot in Florida. You, you don't want to be a roof on a roof for too long. So uh, that's that's a pretty cool story. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Uh, the future's the future's hitting this uh, hitting this pretty quick too. It just uh, like I said, thirty five years I've, I've been in manufacturing, and uh, you know where I was at to where it is today is uh, is beyond night and day, really. And you know that that being said, I mean I came you know I came from a very dirty industry. I came out of the steel industry, and um, you know there's a big misconception about what manufacturing is today, and What's caused that? I, I can't answer that. You know, maybe it's just, you know, what's happened, but manufacturing is just not as sexy as it used to be. So education is such a big part of it. Where, where do you guys feel that education fits into this and, and how do we get people, you know, how do we get our kids more interested in it and, and what has to happen from an educational standpoint, um, you know, as far as automation is concerned, especially here in the state of Florida, get everybody interested and excited about it and get them ready for this new technology. I'll let those guys speak. Uh, I already said yeah, probably that's, enough. That's, on Doug, that. that's good. Doug, let's hear from you. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, Jeff's probably far better able to answer this than I. That's his space. Um, I'll, I send you, that, I'll send you a check, Doug. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you I, I think that... It starts with, you know, ideally elementary school children getting exposed to, and it's not robotics. I mean, a lot of them play with Legos. My, my nephews play with Legos, and it's I'm trying to convince one of them, he's 14, to, to be an intern here. And I, he loves 3D printing, and, uh, you know, he's already got a Fusion 360 free license that he's, you know, downloaded and, des and designing things. Uh, I think that it's, we, we've gotten to the, the point where this stuff is cool as long as we can get exposure to it. And it, I think it really starts with, you know, the, the math and science teachers in the, you know, in the elementary school uh, getting exposure to that. And then the parents getting them involved with maybe robotics programs. Um, you know, so that's where the, the students are, are seeing that first as a great program. I think there's a couple other. I think Lego actually has one as well. Um, and then, you know, putting them on a path uh, through some of the tech schools. I went to a, a magnet tech school and really got exposure to some of this stuff there. Um, and it really comes down to the parents knowing that, that hey, long term, there's a great opportunity from a career standpoint. Um, you know, that's very high paying, very secure uh, and really trying to change that perception. And you mentioned, you know, uh, a steel being a dirty industry. So there's two pretty large steel mills here in Florida and they just built a brand new one in Frostproof, Nucor did. Uh, and it's beautiful. It is very high tech. Um, it is, it's not the, the steel mill of yesterday. Um, again, 
And I, I think that trying to get over that perception, it's hot and, you know, it's probably dirty a little bit and, you know, it's, it's hard work, but you know, that's where opportunity is typically disguised as. So it's trying to get them uh, to understand that there's a, there's a huge upside and it's actually pretty cool stuff from a technology standpoint. It's not, um, you know, turning a wrench and there's nothing wrong with that either, but it's not, it's not uh, yesterday or your, your grandfather's manufacturing facility. Jeff, I'll bounce back up to you. You were eager to answer this. So what, how do you feel about, uh, you know, what do we need to do to really get things kickstarted? Well, you know, my biggest challenge is actually trying to make it fun. Um, we've kickstarted one heck of a, a bit here. So over the past three years, the first year was almost philanthropy, but it seems like we keep getting uh, pushed to do more. Manatee County has 10 units in their school system right now six middle schools and four high schools and they're still they're building high schools all the time and middle schools so we um see expansion in that area where they're being um they're being uh presented actual industrial equipment um like i said a lot of collaborative robots just because of the ability to make it uh, safer for some of this younger the younger talent um, and I'm being asked to push this down to elementary. And it's scary to me, to be honest, um, because I think the cost is pretty significant. And the the safety aspect uh, keeps me awake at night. Uh, but we're trying to find ways to get the, uh, more students in the engineering programs and computer science on a pathway that they know if they love this stuff or they hate it because it's not going to be good if you go off to UCF or USF for a year or University of Florida and come back and say, I didn't know that's what engineering is about. So uh, having a pathway is a process that the schools are, you know, Manatee is adopting. But the, one of the biggest challenges I have is the sales cycle. Um, if you called me up and said, hey, I want that for my middle school, um, I'll see you in 18 months when I finally get the funding. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever I write down for a robot, you know, or a piece of a sensor, it's probably going to change three or four times by the time you actually want to buy it. I'm going to keep it generic. Government's throwing a lot of money out there if you can go get it. Companies like Sean's and, and Doug's, they can provide, you know, volunteers some time and tell you and join advisory boards and tell you what you want. But the school has a lot to do with keeping up with technology. And if they can, so one of the examples we have is our equipment, it's industrial grade. If a small company said, hey, I could use that robot, you know, technology's changed and the school wants to upgrade in technology, they could sell that, that product line maybe to a manufacturer or push it down to a lower level like an elementary and keep your tech schools with the latest and greatest technology. So a replenishment program, repurposing program, uh, don't make an investment of $500,000 and then have to wait 10 years to make the next big one. Um, every year they should be looking at who's going to use these programs and who's going to use the skill, these knowledge, skills, and abilities, and how do we keep them fresh? So uh, Manatee County is really... Uh, doing an amazing job by pushing us all the way from elementary to Manatee Technical College. Uh, Collier County's doing the same. Lee County's following. Um, over there in Orlando, they are. They have a lot of collaboration with the universities and the school system. So, 
businesses, schools, and government. And those three can align their, their budgets and their schedules and the needs, um, we can help. Yeah. Sean, what would, uh, what would you like to add to that? Well, I think, I mean, Doug and Jeff covered a lot of it. I, I think, you know, one of the important things that we need to, you know, be, be discussing, especially at the high school level, too, is, um, you know, four, four year degree is not for everybody. You can make a really good living in manufacturing and, and even you know, in robot programming and, you know, industrial equipment, uh, maintenance, uh, support, and maybe even, you know, eventually design. Um, you know, with, with this two-year program, you don't have to go into a massive amount of debt. Um, you know, I, I, I have a, a degree in engineering, but I often argue that um, a lot of my courses were um, theoretical in nature, I guess you're going to say. Um, you know, it, it prepared me to do calculations that I might need to do in the future. But, you know, let's be honest, I'm done. I'm designing machinery. I don't need, you know, three semesters of, of heat transfer. I probably only need one to be quite honest with you, but it, you know, I needed more, I would have been better served a little bit more hands-on um, even at a, you know, a bachelor's level of, of doing some machining and then learning more about machining and things like that. Um, you know, the, the, the old, the shop class has gone away in high schools and now it's being replaced, thank goodness, with, you know, stuff that, that Jeff is helping out with is, is some more of this advanced technology, 3D printing and robotics. And so we're kind of starting to bring some of that back. But we had a, we had a big generation, I think, probably between, you know, my generation and the, and the, and the kids now that are, that are learning about robots. There were a lot of that went away, you know, a lot of that hands on uh, knowledge and, and, and working, you know, working with your hands did go away. Um, you know, we had a lot of technologies out there that are free now too um i mean a perfect example is the the gentleman who's now my my manufacturing manager when he started with us seven or eight years ago um you know knew next to nothing about machining um he did not go to school to learn machining he went on youtube and he asked questions and he went to forums and he played around with the, the manual mill and then went to the cnc mill and Quite honestly, he is, I, I'd put him up against, you know, machinists that have got 20 and 25 years. Um, and he was self-taught, completely self-taught. He just learned how to do it. Um, so there are those resources that are out there that, for free, you know, or low cost, even with, you know, with, with grants and scholarships, where you can go pick up a, a skill that can pay you, you know, 50, 90, $100,000 a year um, with not a, you know, a lot of experience. Um, pretty inexpensively. So, um, you know, we've been better uh, as, as a state and, and certainly, you know, Sarasota and Manatee County have been pretty good um, about trying to uh, promote this. Um, but, you know, as a, as a nation as a whole, we've got, we've got a long way to go to, to, to teach kids that, uh, you know, this is important. And, and just to spiral off a little bit, it, I, I think the, the pandemic has shown, too, with our supply chain issues and all, we need to start doing more in the inside the United States. We cannot rely on external uh, suppliers you know, to, to, to make sure uh, that our industries can keep going. So you know, we, we are going to be forced to pull manufacturing here back into the United States and do it here um, or we're, we're going to run into you know, more and more supply chain issues. Yeah, that's something we're definitely seeing. Um, 
just this this is uh, for the audience out there watching. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this so far. Uh, we have a lot more to to, to talk about. Uh, please put some questions in. Uh, you know, put some questions in the in the text box uh, below. We've got three great panelists here that would love to uh, uh, give you as much knowledge as they can about what's going on in in automation and and how it can help you. So please, uh, you know, please hit that chat box and and throw some questions up there. So as as we're getting into you know we're talking a little bit more about education we've talked a lot about the challenges um what are some of the biggest myths that that you hear and and sean i'm going to keep you on on the hot seat what are some of the biggest myths that you hear about automation out there and and how do you address those to you know with you know with your clients yeah so i we kind of touched on this a little bit you know uh but but a lot of companies you know, believe that it's that it's too expensive. I can't afford automation. I, what I mentioned before, oh, robots. You know, those are those are far too expensive. We can't afford robots. Um, you know, when you really go in and start looking at some of that ROI analysis, though, you'll you'll show that you know you 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 can't you can't afford this. Can sometimes you you can't afford not to. Um, we we've had customers say that well, we're having to run our our manufacturing equipment at half speed because we can't get enough operators, you know, to, to package the product or to, to stack it or to do whatever the operation is, you know, after that piece of machinery. Um, so you, you have to ask the question, you know, and we want to replace the, you know, we, we need, we need to replace these two operators so we can move them into another part of the factory. And I said, well, it's not just two operators, it's four operators because you're running the machine at half speed. Right. So there's, there's those types of, uh, you know, uh, Lack, lack of clarity maybe into what the true ROI, ROI is um, by, by our, uh, you know, some of our manufacturers. Um, you know, another, another myth um, is that, um, you know, our product can't be automated. Again, it's, it's kind of what I went back to before. We've always done it this way. Um, I think Doug said earlier, pretty much anything can be automated if you have enough time and money. Now, it may not make sense to automate something ridiculously complex with low volumes, um, but it can be done eventually. Um, and then uh, the, the, the final thing I'll just kind of talk about is you know, we don't have time to automate. It goes back to what we said before. You're putting out the fire in front of you. You don't see the fire behind you. you know, you've, got, you've got to really start pulling the, the, the trigger um, on, on, on automation days. Um, so, um, you know, that, those, are, those are a lot of the pushback that we get from customers. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's hundreds of reasons why you shouldn't automate in their heads, you know, um, but when you really look down at it, when you really get down to the, the final numbers, um, quite honestly, you know, just about any manufacturing process probably needs to be looked at to be automated, no matter what it is. Now, it may not make sense from an ROI standpoint, but you really have to look at every single process. Okay, great. That actually uh, brings us to something good, Sean, because we've got a couple questions uh, hitting, uh, hitting the chat box. Uh, we're talking a lot about manufacturing. What, um, you know, and, and I guess, Doug, I'll, well, Jeff, I'm going to take this to you and then we'll open it up to the panel. What about the processes that are supporting manufacturing? What about accounting? What about email systems? Uh, you know, what kind of automation is, is available, you know, for, for the, let's say the front end and the admin side? Well, you know, I'm not a I'm not a software expert on that. You know, I'm more on the on the manufacturing floor. But uh, 
uh, RPA is a well-known you know acronym out there. It's waste in the it's waste in the value stream, right? What are you gonna What are the customers paying for? Uh, so it doesn't matter if it's actually the widget or something that touches the widget indirectly. Um, it's waste in the in the value stream. That uh, if you have a the proper management team, they will they should be able to identify that and address issues so um, you can grow. And the myths that uh, just to touch a little bit on what Sean said, a lot of those myths come from companies that are are going through a growth phase, and maybe they say they don't have time to automate. Uh, maybe they um, there's a concern that it's going to take jobs, uh, but I believe automation can stabilize uh, headcount uh, as you're growing through a company. So whether or not you're you're actually physically touching the product or you're indirectly uh, touching the product for your customer, that uh, you are automating, you're considering automation maybe to stabilize your headcount or sustain your margins or reach a 20% growth, you know, year over year. Uh, to me, I, I would defer if, if somebody said, hey, we are spending a lot of time double entering data in our in our shipping and receiving. Um, I would defer to somebody else, but you go through the same evaluation, um, very similar evaluation, baseline your process, uh, lay out the outcomes where you want it to where you want it to be, and maybe software is a solution. But as Sean said, every process should be looked at, and you should have that type of understanding of your current process, so you know when that one does become the biggest headache, that you're just consistent in your methodology of continuous improvement or evaluation or investment. Um, too many emotions happen or too many problems happen at the end of a uh, quarter or under a fiscal year and you got to react and uh, uh, it makes the miss more substantial or it didn't work last time or that robot's now been pushed into the corner and it's got spider webs on it because maybe poor evaluation up front or poor engineering or hey, maybe it wasn't really needed. Doug, uh, what, what's, uh, what, what are your thoughts, you know, yes on the MIFs, but also on, uh, you know, automating the admin side of, uh, you know, of the manufacturing, let's say. Wouldn't have a lot of experience on, on the software side of, you know, I think the ERP systems nowadays are pretty sophisticated where they've taken a lot of those steps out. Um, you know, the big ones we see are SAP, Oracle, and Infor. Uh, those are the three that we're asked to potentially interface with uh, on an automation standpoint, Sam. Point, if we're going to do like an ignition integration or, or some sort of industry 4.0. Um, the other side in regards to some of the myths, I, I think that we've talked a little bit about it, but if your strategy is, is if I have a 20% increase in business uh, that I can just increase my headcount 20% find set 20% easily, um, I think that that is a myth that, that's currently being dispelled or needs to be dispelled. And I think it's going to be an interesting shift as <sighs> – when you see periods of really high inflation, um, you know, typically they follow, you know, a, 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 you know, hopefully a, a small recession, but, you know, history tells it. So if we see a bit of a slowdown, um, it's a little bit different because, you know, the unemployment rate is so low, uh, which further exacerbates this problem. Um, but it, it's it's going to be interesting to see where if, if we're going to see a reduction in, uh, you know, potential labor rates, you know, when that stabilizes, what raw material is going to do. Um, you know, if you have some raw material suppliers that are pretty comfortable at a certain rate and maybe have, 
have kind of adjusted their business model and or, you know, based on their you know, high labor rates, um, that their labor contribution rate is higher on their individual, you know, than raw material, you're cutting pieces of aluminum or whatever it is, you know, how that's going to shift. And I think that the, the, the savvy entrepreneurs out there uh, and, and business folks that can figure out a way to, for, for certain market segments, keep prices high and margins high, uh, but potentially utilize automation um, to reduce costs in certain instances to go take market share. Um, you know, maybe where there is a, uh, you know, a loss leader of some sort or something that, um, you know, potentially wasn't automatable previously. That's not really a word, but I'll use it. Um, that now might be based on, you know, just the, 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 uh, the higher labor rates and the higher material cost. Um, as those start to come down, you know, some of the ROIs make a little bit more sense. Um, and, and really somebody pretty savvy could take some market share utilizing that technology. Because I think that there's going to be a big shift uh, once prices and, and labor rates stabilize, um, that there's going to be, I think, even more chaos in the market. Doesn't mean we're able to get any of it. Lead times might still be the issue, but we might be paying less for yeah. it. Exactly, exactly. We have another question in the in the chat box uh, from, from Nate, and uh, he, he'd like to hear everybody's thoughts on uh, cobots versus traditional, you know, traditional automation. And what would be some good cases for the use of each of them? And uh, you know what, Doug, I'm going to stay with you because you talked a little bit about it earlier. So uh, I'm, I'm going to stick with you on this one, and then we'll we'll move to the other two. So in full transparency, we uh, we both sell and integrate both. So I look at collaborative robots as an and, not an or. You know, it's not one of those things where it's traditional and or collaborative. Um, I don't love the word collaborative. Um, you know, it implies that, you know, every application that could be utilized is safe. The majority of ones uh, you see on both YouTube and Sean's LinkedIn are, are uh, not necessarily safe. Um, and the majority of installs are, are, you know, typically DIY, which is what it's really uh, the, the original objective was an easy to program robot. And, and that's really what I look at the collaborative technology and the 800 pound gorilla in the room is, is universal robots. They invented they didn't necessarily invent the technology. A company called Rethink did, but they really took it to the next level in regards to being able to, um, you know, scale that technology. What what it's given us the ability to do is applications um, that might have required a, a traditional robot that the ROI wouldn't have been there. Uh, maybe a robot arm and a, and a simple uh, end of arm tool with some um, internal programming. Maybe a, a a team member that has some CNC programming experience or PLC experience could potentially program the robot. Uh, but all the other collaborative robot suppliers have have caught up from a technology standpoint on the programming environment. Uh, UR still has you know market share advantage, and then they also have uh, connectivity advantage in regards to having uh, connectivity to different end of arm tool. But but that's going to shrink as well. Um, it really comes down to uh, you know, how comfortable you are. And the majority of, of collaborative robot applications that we run into still would need some sort of integration help, um, either external or internal, if you've, if you've got that. But it's not anybody can just grab this robot that, that comes in this box. Um, some, some good uncommon applications where we see are machine tending. Uh, depending on what's going on in the end, it might or might not to be need to be guarded. Uh, but where you have an operator loading and unloading things. Um, the other one would be, you know, maybe polishing or sanding. We see quite a few of those. Uh, the up and coming one is, is probably going to be, uh, I would say, welding, um, you know, for short and, and small runs, whereas a traditional, you know, welding robot is fixed mm -hmm. on one or two applications. 
uh, software has allowed, you know, all sorts of collaborative opportunities for, you know, welding five, 10, 15 piece runs uh, with very minimal setup uh, that allows, you know, small to medium sized job shops to be extremely competitive um, where they can't necessarily find welders or on uh, the smaller, less complex to have a, a very high quality welder work on those. The, the, the math doesn't make sense. Those are the three that we probably see the most right now. Great. Thank, thank you, Doug. Uh, mm -hmm. Jeff, um, your, your input on this? You know, the, uh, the robots in general, the, you know, multi-axis uh, device is just a tool in the toolbox. So uh, I promote looking, you know, at the problem and eventually the, the solution will come to the top. And if you can answer all the questions on how you actually want to process it, it's, um, you know, traditional versus collaborative will, uh, will be uh, um, obvious. But I rarely see a collaborative process, you know, a collaborative robot in the, uh, I say rare, and, you know, maybe one out of 10 see collaborative robots used in manufacturing because, you know, you do have low payloads, low speeds. Just because it's a collaborative robot doesn't mean it's a collaborative product. If you're moving marshmallows real slow, hey, okay. But if you're moving around, you know, and sharpening scissors, probably probably not going to work real well. But you know, we we I've bought many um, because I it does fit my process when it comes to the schools. Um, there's a lot more that uh, is changing, and we look forward to the technology change to make it even better. But uh, um, it's just a tool in a toolbox. I, I'm glad we have it. I think it's going to reshape that next level of collaborative robots or collaborative processing. So it's just a step. And it, when they first came out with traditional robots, um, you know, I'm sure it was it was a shocker to everybody. I, I was actually in Norway a long time ago when ABB made their first robot and they were using you know, old traditional tape. Um, feed tape there to actually program the robot and it was painted wheelbarrows, you know, and uh, I'm sure it was a big problem back then. And it's just, it's just the evolution of the technology. And um, like I said, I would love to see the next, the next um, innovation in collaborative robots, but there's nothing that can replace a human in my, my view right now, as far as flexibility and tech innovation and ease of use. So, when it comes down to, I've got a repeatable process that's reproducible and I need to mass produce it, um, go through a, an evaluation and understand uh, what your outcomes are. And uh, don't find the, don't go buy a collaborative robot just off the get go, or don't go buy a traditional robot off the get go. Actually understand why you're doing it and uh, um, you'll find right. the right tool. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Jeff. And Sean, I'm going to turn uh, turn it over to you. I'd like to hear uh, your your take on uh, cobots versus traditional automation. And, and, Everybody's and, and waiting for this one. Can we please yeah, double yeah. record this, everyone? <laughs> yeah. Everybody get their phones out. A subject I've never been shy about, but uh, I think I have a a little bit of a. Uh, Un undeserved anti-cobot uh, reputation, and and that's not really the case. I'm not. I am not anti-cobot. I, as Jeff said, it's a tool just like any other. You know, if you have a screw, you shouldn't use a hammer, and if you have a nail, you shouldn't use a screwdriver. I mean, you have to look at the application. 
um, you know, a lot of applications that we run into and, and quite honestly, in almost, almost 25 years of doing automation now, you know, a lot of that, there's not customers saying, I want to run slower. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't need to produce as much. And, and cobots just by their very nature tend to be slower. Um, and they tend to have lower payloads as, as Jeff mentioned. Um, so a lot of times they're, they're eliminated immediately just because of an application. Um, you know, there are certainly applications where it makes sense. We've, we've done a couple, you know, cobot projects where it really does make sense because a, a human needs to get in there and do some operation along with the robot, which, you know, again, I think, you know, I kind of agree with Doug. I'm not, I'm not a fan of the term collaborative because really very rarely is the human collaborating with the robot. They're just existing in the same space. Um, you know, you can do a lot of the same things with an industrial robot using area scanners or laser scanners um, to achieve the same result where the robot stops its motion before the, the, the human interacts with it, um, you know, still getting the speeds and the payloads of those, you know, industrial robots. Um, I will say that, you know, you, UR has done a wonderful job at making um, ease of programming um, a, a real selling point um, for some of these cobots, but it, it's software. It's it, it's not really unique to cobot. They were kind of the first to make kind of this drag and drop. I think they were probably the first. Well, re, re, like you said, rethink. But you know, they were the first to make it popular. This kind of drag and drop programming aspect. But more and more robot companies have that that same type of uh, of, of interface now. So um, you know, we we find that there was a lot of just like 3d printing if you guys remember back you know 15 maybe even more years ago everybody's you know the promise was everybody's going to have a 3d printer in their house and when your refrigerator handle breaks or, or something breaks in your car you'll just download that part and you'll and you'll print it right um great idea great you know jetson's flying car idea but it that hasn't come you know to fruition i mean you, you, first of all, where are you going to get the model for the CAD model from? You know, not everybody's going to have that 3D printer in their house. So there was there was some hype there that then turned into some deflation. But now it's a wonderful technology. I mean, we have 3D printers out in our shop that we print parts for for our machines. Um, I think cobots are kind of the same thing. They were there was a lot of hype in them for a while. Um, we would have people come to our our booth at a trade show and say, "I need a cobot." I'm like, okay, why do you need a cobot? Um, you know, well, we get to automate this process. Like, okay, what's the process? Oh, you know, as just said, sharpening knives or, you know, we've got, we're picking up really sharp parts, moving them really fast. I'm like, okay, well, that's not really a application for a cobot. Why do you think you want a cobot? Well, my boss says we need five cobots in the plant by the end of the year. And, you know, I did your boss read a New York Times article on cobots? Yeah, he did. Like, okay, you know, it's not understanding where the technology should and should not be used. Um, so uh, again, I think they, they have a place, they've come a long way. The, the, the way they've gone to market has changed a little bit. I mean, to be totally honest, in the very beginning, the cobot companies went to market saying, you don't need guarding, they're perfectly safe. And there's a lot of applications that were not safe at all. Um, so, you know, they have pivoted a little bit away from, hey, you have to do your risk analysis, which is good and responsible. 
um, and, and and more towards the the ease of programming. So again, I mean, it, it's going down and looking at the application. Do you use a an electric actuator or do you use an air cylinder? It, it depends, right? If you don't have an air compressor, guess what? You probably aren't, aren't using an air cylinder. So um, you know, if you got to move really fast, really precise, again, you're probably not using an air cylinder. If it's just a bang bang motion back and, and forth, yeah, sure, that makes sense. So you can get a look at the tool and, and decide based on the application, which tool you want to use. Great, great. No, that's a uh, great, great information, guys. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, and I see this too, just in my position and going out and talking to to manufacturers, especially when it comes to automation, there's a, there's a lot of education that, uh, you know, that comes from, you know, you, you know, you the panelists, your companies, uh, and also from business advisors and consultants, you know, I think we all need to get better in educating the manufacturers and getting them to understand, you know, just to what your, your point was, uh, Sean, is why do you want it? You know, it's not, not just because you want it. There has to be, there, there has to be a, a tangible and financial reason, let's say, as well, you know, to want to be able to automate and go, go forward. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense and you're just, just wasting, you're wasting your money. So, I mean, that's great. Um, and Jeff, you said something interesting and I, and, and we have about, uh, we're coming up on 10 minutes left in, in, in this webinar. So I, I'd like to take these last, uh, last 10 minutes to talk about the future, talk about the evolution of technology and where do, where do you gentlemen see automation going from here? And we've seen it come so far. Uh, you know, but now what is the, what are the next steps? What, what is, you know, what is the future holding for it? And, and you know what, Jeff, I'm going to let you kick that off. Well, you know, I, I'll be honest, we, what we're doing, uh, our company strategy right now is to help at the technical level, um, technicians, you know, application specialists, maybe not engineers, we're, we're a stepping stone, so then they can go on to, to engineering schools. We don't compete against that. Um, so we look for commercially viable products and concepts that there's a there's a shortage for, whether it be there's a supply chain shortage in semiconductors or there's not enough nurses. We're trying to solve a problem that actually exists right here. You can go out and see it, smell it, feel it, touch it. I'm not too worried about virtual reality and... Um, um, artificial and artificial intelligence at that level. That's not where our company is going to be a, a technology type company. That way, what we're what we really want to do is make sure we got the best tools um, in front of those students that are ready to use them almost immediately, so they can go work for Sean Dotson and they understand a robotic application. And they're not out at a customer saying, "Yeah, you should have went with a cobot," and they don't understand why. We we want them to understand our process of um, analysis. So we run them through different scenarios with different tooling. You know, it's, it's fun watching a student have to connect extruded aluminum together to make a <clears throat> machine attached to another machine. So it's repeatable and reproducible. If anybody ever moved it, they've never done that before. It's great for them to have a, a, an automatic tool changer so they could have one robot and multiple tools and, and do different things that, that exposure is tremendous. Um, so our technology is, we're using what's out there right now. Um, I, I don't know where our company will be when it comes to things, non, 
non-commercially viable and it's it's like a Jetson vehicle, you know, as Sean mentioned. But what I see, uh, I'll call it technology, is the the ability as well to, for our OEMs and our integrators and our businesses and, uh, you know, schools to support each other. I'd love to see more OEMs do more on the education uh, to support technical schools and get exposure to that equipment early. Not, not hey, we, uh, we still have to make a profit. Um, and it's just, sorry, education, yeah, it's up to the schools to buy. I'd love to see more OEMs do more, uh, a lot more to expedite that. Um, and then, you know, Sean Dotson, uh, he is Sean here. He, he's done a lot, uh, you know, with Sarasota County, he's, you know, part of an organization to donate equipment, um, really high tech, um, new equipment. Most of the people I see donate equipment out there. It's 20 years old and they can't support it after it's got an Omron PLC that nobody even uses in the region. And, but it was, it was in their way and the school's just happy to get something. And I hate that. I, I bloody hate that. I think it becomes more of a pain and it's not where the focus should be. We, the school should have the best technology and they should be selling it maybe to the industry, the small businesses, when they're done with it so they can upgrade and get the latest and greatest so they can be industry ready every 12 months you know not uh, be ready for an interview and then be ready to be retrained you know when it comes down to you know working with Rashawn or Doug you know maybe they use a different type of the equipment and have to learn a new program but it's not something that's outdated and antiquated and uh, you know belongs in a cave so my technology thought uh, is really about the the ability for the process to be streamlined and businesses and schools and government work closer together to make sure our education is supporting our local economy. Great, great. Thank you, Jeff. Doug, um, I, I'd like to hear you know your thoughts on where do you think um, the evolution of technology you know, is is going to go? What's what's happening next when it comes to automation? I think the VR we touched on is probably going to be a portion of it. I think that um, the remote workforce that um, we started through COVID and is turned into a hybrid and or full remote workforce, um, especially with trying to uh, attract younger talent. Uh, they want that hybrid flexibility and maybe want to work at four o'clock in the morning and Maybe want to work from their home or a coffee shop or Arizona. Um, so I think we have to be a lot more flexible. So that VR technology in ways that we can communicate uh, and being able to share designs uh, together in a way that it'd be very similar to, to, to you know two engineers sitting next to each other in their cubicle uh, might be a thousand miles away, but how we can collaborate there uh, and being able to share code and those types of things, I think that's going to be critical if we want to attract top talent. Um, they don't necessarily have to be in the building. I think from a technology standpoint, robots are going to get smarter, cheaper, faster. So is machine vision. Um, the PLC, I think that there's going to be a huge, I think, shift to, to more PC-based. I'd be interested in Sean's opinion, but I, I think the PLC is, uh, it's, it's a great product. I think the technology's you know, done a really, really good, good job over the years, but I think more and more customers are already putting PCs on their machines for other things, and they've got this PLC that has to communicate with that. Um, there's some 
obsolescence issues and, and you know, chip issues that PLCs don't have that seem to have as much, but as, as high-end motion control really gets to like critical mass and some of these machines are moving extremely fast, the, the PLC technology is gonna have to make a shift to, to PC versus or slash PLC. And then just the connectivity is gonna have to get um, easier. Uh, IO links really help with the industry 4.0 side, but I think more and more customers are gonna want to be able to put more and more data on things uh, and get more and more data on networks. And the only way to do that is that that price per point from an IO standpoint has got to come down. Um, and then you got to be able to get more data points from a single sensor, maybe temperature, pressure, flow versus just having one for each. Um, and then how did I aggregate that data in a, in a cost effective, easy, easy way where I don't have to have, you know, multiple database people on, on staff to be able to aggregate that data. But I think that that's probably the, the, the three or four bigger shifts that I think are going to happen. Great. Thank you, Doug. And uh, Sean, I'm going to let you uh, let you take uh, take the last uh, piece of this, and tell me your you know your thoughts. Where do you think automation goes from here? What is the next evolution going to be? So uh, you know, Doug, Doug had mentioned you know more more PC control. I was curious what my you know opinion is is that was on it, and and I agree. Um, it, it's going to be you know probably some embedded. Uh, more embedded PC control. Um, I was I was fortunate enough many years ago to get introduced to uh, Dick Morley, who was the you know the inventor of the modern PLC. He and I went to the same conferences for, for a number of years, and I got 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 to know him fairly well. And and the man who invented the PLC at one point, you know, before he passed away, kind of this grumpy old man. He's like, I don't even know why you guys are still using these things. It's like you know. They were great back when I invented them, but they're, you know, they're, they're 50, 60 years old now. Like, like you should have moved past this. Ladder logic is a ridiculous language and just, you know, rants and braved. And it was so funny to hear the guy who, he basically is like, no, move past my invention, right? So, you know, the, the kids are not learning ladder logic. They are learning some sort of structured text programming, whether it be Python or C or Java or, or you know, any any of these other languages. And, and those are all a lot easier. Once you learn one of those languages, to learn another one is, is pretty simple. You know, even, even robots nowadays, they're, they're, they're either graphically driven or they are, you know, in, in very simple you know, human readable language, you know, go to this position and then turn on this IO point and then wait until this happens and then do, go here. It's somebody with just basic, basic programming skills can, can figure out what's, what's going on. So um, definitely see ease of use and ease of programming and things like that. Um, you know, that, that, that's the future. Um, what I'm seeing in the industry overall, though, is um, a lot of high, high mix, low volume customization. You know, lots of one. We have customers now who, you know, used to be, you know, manufacturer would make five products and they made varying levels of those five products. But for the most part, they made all five, you know, kind of, there was one bestseller and four that were all the same volume, right? Now we've got customers that have, you know, literally thousands and thousands of SKUs. And it's this, you know, huge long tail of, of uh, uh, volumes. Um so, you know, naturally you want to go to the 80-20 rule and try to apply that. Look, we're only going to automate that, you know, the highest runners. But there's such a long tail that it does add up to, to a lot of products. So you really have to kind of shift your thinking as to how are we going to automate all these varying SKUs. And the way we've addressed that is to come up with some standard 
um, platforms. Um, we have one that's a linear motor type platform that can move pucks around a, a, a platform very quickly and move them forward, move them back. You know, just by changing some programming, um, you, you can you can change the machine to be very flexible. Um, by having that standardized platform, then we can spend some time on now, you know, what does the robot do at each one of these stations specifically for that product? So we've got to the point now where we can run multiple products, lots of multiple products on one platform. Um, even gone as far for graphically, you want to add a product, you know, here's the generic drawing of the product. Well, how long is that? What's the diameter? You know, where are the threads? By just inputting, you know, where those certain dimension A, B, C, and D, where they are, we're now telling the machine how to run this brand new product that maybe we didn't even know about when we delivered the machine to the customer. So now the customer can add new products to, to the machine. So I mean, that's that's some of the you know the flexibility, um, definitely, especially when you look at consumer goods. Consumer goods are changing sometimes every six months. You know, they gotta come out with a new razor that's got, you know, three heads, no four, no five, no six, no, you know, no eight. Now the other day I saw something the other day. No, we're going back to one one blade, because one blade's better. It's like it's gone completely full circle. But you know, yeah. consumer products like that are are always changing. You have to be highly flexible in in the automation. You can't can't have hard tooled automation anymore. Great. Thank you, Sean. Uh, thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Doug. Uh, this this has been a very uh, informative, interesting panel today. Uh, you know, talking about automation, technology, and manufacturing. Uh, you know, we're looking at the future here, folks. Uh, there's a lot of things uh, happening. A lot of great stuff coming uh, coming down the road as we as we move further and further into the 21st century. Uh, thanks again, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you, everybody uh, that has attended this call today. Appreciate your time. I hope that you uh, you enjoyed everything uh, that these gentlemen brought to you today, and uh, we wish you all the best. And uh, have a have a great afternoon. And that wraps up the webinar on the state of automation. Thank you to Fortimakes for orchestrating the event and also allowing us to reuse the audio. Thank you to Sean and Jeff for their participation. As always, it is great to hear from Doug and his thoughts on automation. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast, sharing it with a colleague, uh, leaving a comment or a review. All those things help us to reach a broader audience. And until next time, keep getting better, faster, and smarter. See ya.